You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of uh, a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner uh, entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, 16 lectures. And it was uh, formerly known as Man as Hieroglyph of the Universe. And it is Collective Works, Volume 201. Lectures were given in uh, Dornach, Switzerland between the 9th of April and the 16th of May. 1920. Lecture 1. Today I shall try to give a wider view of a subject already often touched upon. I have frequently pointed out how moral and intellectual conceptions diverge for modern man. On the one hand, we are brought, through intellectual thinking, to recognition of the iron necessity of nature. In accordance with this necessity, we see everything in nature under the law of cause and effect. And we also, and we ask also, when man performs an action, what has caused it? What is the inner or outer cause? This recognition of the inevitable necessity of all that occurs has in modern times acquired a more scientific character. In earlier times it had a more theological character and still has for many people. It takes on a scientific character when we believe that what we do is dependent on our bodily constitution and on the influences that work upon us. There are still many people who think that man acts just as inevitably as a stone falls to the ground. There you have the natural scientific coloring of the necessity concept. The view of those more inclined to theology might be described as follows. Everything is preordained by some kind of divine power or providence, and man must carry out what is predestined by that divine power. Thus, on the one hand, we have the necessity of natural science, and on the other, absolute divine prescience or prescience. In neither case can one speak of human freedom at all. Over against this stands the whole moral world. Man feels of this world that he cannot so much as speak of it without postulating free will. For if he has no possibility of free, voluntary choice, he cannot speak of a morality of human action. He does, however, feel responsibility. He feels moral impulses. He must therefore recognize a moral world. I have mentioned before how the impossibility of building a bridge between the two, between the world of necessity and the world of morals, led Kant to write two critiques, the title Critique of Pure Reason, in which he applies himself to investigating the nature of simple necessity, and the title Critique of Applied Reason, in which he inquires into what belongs to the moral universe. Then he felt compelled to write also a title, Critique of Judgment, 
which was intended as an intermediary between the two, but which ended in being no more than a compromise. It approached reality only when it turned to the world of beauty, the world of artistic creation. This goes to show how we have the world of necessity on the one hand and on the other the world of free moral action, but cannot find anything to unite the two except the world of artistic semblance, where, let us say, in sculpture or in painting, we appear to be picturing what comes from natural necessity, but impart to it something which is free from necessity, thus giving it the appearance of being free in necessity. The truth is that we are unable to build a bridge between the world of necessity and the world of freedom unless we find the way through spiritual science. Spiritual science, however, can only be developed by fulfilling the aphorism which one respect centuries ago, the Greek saying of Apollo, Know thyself. Now, this admonition, which does not mean burrowing into one's own subjectivity, but implies a knowledge of the whole being of man and the position he occupies in the universe, is a search that must find a place in our whole spiritual movement through spiritual science. From this point of view, we may really say that our anthroposophical spiritual movement has in the last few days begun to show clearly to the spiritual life of humanity how we must seek to illuminate and imbue modern thinking with the knowledge of man. For it is a fact that this knowledge of man has largely been lost in modern times. This was our aim in the course of lectures that has just been held for doctors, where an initial attempt was made to throw positive light upon matters with which medical science has to concern itself. In the series of lectures given by our friends and myself, we tried to show the right relationship between the individual sciences and what they can receive from spiritual science. It would be very good indeed for a strong consciousness of the need for such attempts to live within our movement. For if we are to succeed, it is absolutely necessary to make clear to the outer world, in a sense to compel it to understand, that here no kind of superficiality prevails in any domain but rather an earnest striving for real knowledge. This is often prevented by the way in which things reach the public from our own circles, so that it is supposed, or may easily be maliciously suggested, that all kinds of sectarianism and dilettantism are at work here. It is for us to increasingly convince the outer world how earnest is the striving underlying all that this building represents. Such attempts as we made over the last two years must be carried further by the forces of the whole anthroposophical movement. For we have now made a beginning with a true knowledge of man, which must form the foundation of all true spiritual culture. It is true to say that from the middle of the 15th century, man's previous concrete relation to the world has been growing more and more filtered one may say, and abstract. In olden times, through atavistic clairvoyance, man knew much more of himself than he does today, 
For since the middle of the 19th century, intellectualism has spread over the whole of the so-called civilized world. Intellectualism is based upon a very small part of man's being, and it produces accordingly no more than an abstract schema of knowledge about the world. What has knowledge of the world become in the course of the last centuries? In its relation to the universe, it has become mere mathematical, mechanical calculation, to which in recent times have been added the results of spectral analysis. These again are purely physical, and within the physical domain purely mechanical, mathematical. Astronomy observes the courses of the stars and calculates but it notices only those forces which show the universe, in so far as the earth is enclosed in it, as a great machine, a great mechanism. It is true to say that this mechanical, mathematical method of observation has come to be regarded as the only one that can actually lead to real knowledge. Now, what does the mentality which finds expression in this mathematical, mechanical construction of the universe, rely upon. It reckons with something that is founded to some extent in the nature of man, but only in a very small part of him. It reckons first with the abstract three dimensions of space. Astronomy reckons with the abstract three dimensions of space. It distinguishes one dimension, a second, and he's drawing on the blackboard, and a third at right angles. It fixes attention on a star in movement or on the position of a star by looking at these three dimensions of space. Now, man would be unable to speak of three-dimensional space if he had not experienced it in his own being. Man experiences three-dimensional space. In the course of his life, he experiences first the vertical dimension. As a child, he crawls, and then he raises himself upright, and thus experiences the vertical dimension. It would not be possible for man to speak of the vertical dimension if he did not experience it. To think that he could find anything in the universe other than he finds in himself would be an illusion. Man finds this vertical dimension only by experiencing it in him, himself. By stretching out our hands and arms at right angles to the vertical, we obtain the second dimension. In what we experience when breathing or speaking, in the inhaling and exhaling of the air, or in what we experience when we eat, when the food in the body moves from front to back, we experience the third dimension. Only because man experiences these three dimensions within him does he project them into external space. Man can find absolutely nothing in the universe unless he finds it first in himself. The strange thing is that in this age of abstractions, which began in the middle of the 15th century, man has given all three dimensions a similar quality. That is, he has simply left out of his thought the concrete distinction between them. He has left out what makes the three dimensions different to him. If he were to express his real human experience, he would say, 
my vertical, my encompassing or my outstretching dimension, he would have to assume a different difference in quality between the three spatial dimensions. Were he to do this, he would no longer be able to conceive of an astronomical cosmogony in the present abstract way. He would obtain a less purely intellectual cosmic picture. For this, however, he would have to experience in a more concrete way his own relationship to the three dimensions. Today he has no such experience. He does not experience, for instance, the quality of the upright position, of being vertical. And so he is not aware that he is in a vertical position for the simple reason that he moves together with the earth in a certain direction which adheres to the vertical. Neither does he know that he makes his breathing movements, his digestive and eating movements, as well as other movements, in a direction through which the earth also moves. All this adherence to certain directions of movement implies an adaptation, a fitting into the movements of the universe. Today man takes no account whatever of this concrete understanding of the dimensions, hence he cannot define his position in the great cosmic process. He does not know how he stands in it, nor that he is, as it were, a part and member of it. We will increasingly have to take steps to obtain a knowledge of man, a self-knowledge, and so a knowledge of our place in the universe. The three dimensions have really become so abstract for man that he would find it extremely difficult to train himself to feel that by living in them he is taking part in certain movements of the earth and the planetary system. A spiritual scientific method of thought, however, can be applied to our knowledge of man by beginning to seek an understanding of the three dimensions. It is difficult to attain, but we shall more easily raise ourselves to this spatial knowledge of man if we consider not the three lines of space at right angles, but three planes. Consider the following for a moment. We shall readily perceive that our symmetry has something to do with our thinking. We can discover an elementary, natural gesture that we make to express a process of thinking and judgment. When we place finger on nose and move through this plane here, a drawing is made, we are moving through the vertical symmetry plane which divides our left side from our right. This plane, passing through the nose and through the whole body, is the plane of symmetry, and we can become conscious that it is connected with all the discriminating that goes on within us, all the thinking and judging that discriminates and divides. Starting from this elementary gesture, it is actually possible to become aware of how all human functions are related to this plane. Consider the function of seeing. We see with two eyes, in such a way that the lines of vision intersect. We see a point with two eyes, but we see it as one point because the lines of sight cross each other. 
Much of our human activity is so regulated that our understanding and grasping of things is connected with this plane. We can then turn to another plane which would pass through the heart and divide man back from front. In front, man is physiognomically organized so as to express his soul being. This physiognomical soul structure is divided off by a plane which stands at right angles to the first. As our right and left is divided by a plane, so too is our front divided from our back. We need only stretch out our arms, our hands, directing the physiognomical part of the hand, in contrast to the merely organic part, forward, and the organic part of the hands backward. And then imagine a plane through the principal lines which thus arise, and we obtain the plane I mean. In like manner we can locate a third plane, which would mark off all that is contained in head and countenance from what is organized below into body and limbs. Thus we should obtain a third plane, which again is at right angles to the other two. One can acquire a feeling for these three planes. How the feeling for the first is obtained has already been shown. It is to be felt as the plane of discriminative thinking. The second plane, which divides man into front and back, anterior and posterior, would be precisely what reveals man as man, for this plane cannot be delineated in the same way in the animal. The symmetry plane can be drawn in the animal, but not the vertical plane. This second vertical plane would be connected with everything pertaining to human will. The third, the horizontal, would be connected with everything pertaining to human feeling. Let us try once more to get an idea of these dimensions through their elementary gestures, and we shall see that this can help further our understanding. Everything through which we bring our feelings to expression, whether it be a feeling of greeting or one of thankfulness or any other form of sympathetic feeling, is in a way connected with the horizontal plane. So, too, we can see that in a sense we must relate the will to the vertical plane. It is possible to acquire a feeling for these three planes. Once we have done this, we will be obliged to form our conception of the universe according to these three planes, just as we would if we only regarded the three dimensions of space in an abstract way, be obliged to calculate in the mechanical, mathematical way in which Galileo or Copernicus calculated movements and positions in the universe. Real relationships in this universe will then reveal themselves to us. We will no longer merely calculate according to the three dimensions of space. But once we have learned to feel these three planes, we will notice that there is a difference between right and left, over and under, back and front. In mathematics, it is a matter of indifference whether some object is a little further right or left or before or behind. If we simply measure, we measure below or above, we measure right or left, or we measure forward or backward. In whatever position three meters is set, it remains three meters. 
At most we distinguish, in order to pass from position to movement, the dimensions at right angles to one another. This we do, however, only because we cannot make do with simple measurement alone, for then our world would shrink to no more than a straight line. If, however, we learn to embody thinking, feeling, and willing in these three planes in a real concrete way, and to place ourselves as soul-spiritual beings with our thinking, feeling, and willing into spatial dimensions, then just as we learn to apply to astronomy the three abstract dimensions of space, so do we also learn to apply to it the threefold division of man as a being of soul and spirit. And it becomes possible if we have here, and there's a drawing, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, and lastly, Earth, then it becomes possible if we look at the Sun to observe it in its outer manifestation as something separating, as a dividing element. We must think of a horizontal plane passing through the sun, and we shall no longer regard what is above the plane and what is below as merely quantitative, but must regard the plane as a dividing plane and distinguish the planets as being above or below. Thus we shall no longer say, Mars is so many miles distant from the sun, Venus so many miles. But we shall learn to apply knowledge of man to our knowledge of the universe and say, it is no mere question of abstract dimensions to see that the human head or the nose is at such and such a distance from the horizontal plane, which I have called the plane of feeling, and the heart at such and such a distance, but I shall bring their position and distance above and below into connection with their formation and structure. So too, I shall no longer say of Mars and Mercury that the one is at such a distance and the other at such another distance from the sun. But I shall know that if I regard the sun as a dividing partition, Mars being above must be of one nature and Mercury being below of another. I shall now be able to place a similar plane perpendicularly through the sun. Thus the movements of Jupiter, let us say, or of Mars, will be such that at one time it will stand on the right of this plane and then go across it and stand on the left. If I simply proceed abstractly according to dimensions, I shall find it is sometimes on the right and sometimes on the left and such and such a number of miles. But if I study cosmic space concretely, as I must study my own being, it is not a matter of indifference whether a planet is sometimes on the left and at other times on the right. I can say that there is the same kind of difference whether it is on the right or left as there is between a left and right organ. It is not sufficient to say that the liver is so many centimeters to the right of the symmetrical axis, the stomach so many centimeters to the left, for the two are dissimilar in formation because the one is a right organ and the other a left. It is actually the case that Jupiter becomes different according to whether it is on the right or the left, even to the naked eye. In the same way I might make a third plane, 
and would again have to form a judgment in accordance with that. And if I extend my knowledge of man to the universe, I shall be obliged, as I connected the one plane with human thinking and the second plane with human feeling, to consider the third plane as connected with human will. By describing all this, I only wanted to show how modern astronomy has no more than a last extremely abstract vestige of concrete knowledge when it speaks of the three planes perpendicular to one another, to which the positions and movements of the stars are quite accidentally related, and when it then makes mechanical calculations about the whole universe according to these positions. In the astronomical conception of Galileo, only this one thing is taken into consideration for the universe, abstract space, with its point relationships. This knowledge can, however, be enlarged to become an active and powerful knowledge of man. One can say, man is a thinking, feeling, and willing being. As an outward spatial being, he His thinking relates to one plane, his willing to another at right angles with it, and his feeling to a third at right angles to both. This must apply also in the external world. Since the middle of the fifteenth century, man has really known no more than that he extends in three abstract dimensions. All else is just observations based on that. A true knowledge of man must be regained, and thereby also a knowledge of the cosmos. Then man will understand how necessity and free will are related, and how both can apply to man, since he is born from the cosmos. Naturally, if one only takes this last abstract vestige of the human being's true nature, the three abstract dimensions at right angles to one another, if that is all one wants to imagine, then the universe appears terribly impoverished. Poor, infinitely impoverished is our present astronomical view of the universe. And it will not become richer until we press forward to a real knowledge of man, until we really learn to look into man's true nature. The anthroposophical worldview includes matter, the material as part of real spiritual knowledge. Do not such things as thinking, feeling, and willing appear to human knowledge as terribly bare abstractions nowadays? Man does not investigate himself thoroughly enough. He does not ask himself about the true nature of what these words designate. A great deal has become mere phrase one should really ask oneself conscientiously when using the word thinking whether it presents any clear idea, not to speak of feeling and willing. But our speech becomes clear and plain the moment we pass from the mere making of phrases, the using of lofty words, and go back to pictures, even when we take just that one picture for thinking, putting the finger to the side of the nose. We do not need to do it always, but we know that this gesture is often naturally made when we have to think hard, just as we point the finger to the chin when we want to indicate we are contemplating something or paying attention. We enter this plane 
precisely because we wish to form judgments there about something relating to us. We bisect our organism, as it were, into right and left, for we really act quite differently with our right and left sense organs. This we can appreciate if we observe that we use the left sense organs to sense outer objects, and in our thinking, too, there is a sort of handling or feeling of external objects. With the right sense organs, we sense our sense of them, as it were. It is then that they first become our own. We could never have attained a sense of ego or self if we were not able to bring together our perceptions of what we experience on the right with what we experience on the left. By simply laying our hands one over the other, we have a picture of the ego concept. It is indeed true that by beginning to use clear images instead of mere phraseology, man will become inwardly richer and will gain the faculty of visualizing the universe in richer detail. By taking this path we shall find that the universe comes to life again for us and that we human beings share in its life. Then we shall learn again how to build a bridge between universe and man. When this is done, man will be able to perceive whether there is in the universe an impulse of natural necessity for all that is in man, wholly determining us, or whether the universe in some measure leaves us free. As long as we live in abstractions, we cannot build a bridge between moral and natural law. We must be able to ask ourselves how far natural law extends in the universe and where something enters in which we cannot include under the aspect of natural law. Then we uncover a relationship which has its significance for man too, a relationship between what comes under natural law and what is free and moral. In this way we learn to connect a meaning with the statement, quote, Mars is a planet far from the sun, Venus a planet nearer the sun, close quote. By simply stating their distances in abstract numbers, we have said nothing, or at least very little. For to define things in this way according to the methods of modern astronomy is equivalent to saying, I look at the line which passes through man's two arms and hands, and I speak of an organ that is two and a half decimeters from this line. Now this organ may be a certain distance under the line and another organ a certain distance above it. It is not, however, the distance that makes the difference, but the fact that one organ is above and the other below. Were there no difference between above and below, there would be no difference between the nose or eyes and the stomach. The eyes are only eyes because they are above, and the stomach is only a stomach because it is below this line. The inner nature of the organ is conditioned by the position. Similarly, the inner nature of Mars is qualified by its position outside the sun's orbit and that of Venus by its position within the sun's orbit. If one does not understand the essential difference between an organ in the human head and an organ in the human trunk, the one lying over and the other under this line, 
then one cannot know that Mars and Venus or Mars and Mercury are essentially different. The ability to think of the universe as an organism depends on our learning to understand the living image of the organism we have before us. We must learn to perceive man as a living image of the universe, for he gives us the opportunity of seeing at first hand how different are above and below, left and right, before and behind. We must learn this first in man, and we shall then find it in the universe. The modern view of the universe, held by natural science, really gives a world picture omitting man, recognizing him only as the highest of the animals, that is to say, an abstraction. Man is not included in it at all. And therefore the universe appears to this world view as a mathematical picture only, in which the universal origin of freedom and morality can never be recognized. It is, however, of the utmost importance that we learn to perceive scientifically the connection between moral law and natural necessity. Today I have endeavored to show you, in perhaps rather subtle concepts, how a knowledge of the universe is to be gained from a knowledge of man. I was able to show the doctors, in a strictly scientific way, how this path has to be sought in medicine, physiology and biology. In these lectures, it will be our task to perceive how it must be sought if we are to form aright our general human understanding of the world, which we so need in today's society. The End of Lecture 1